This is the Media Week Industry Podcast from the people at mediaweek.com.au. Welcome to a new Media Week Podcast, talking television today with Andrew Mercado. Welcome back, Andrew. Good morning, James. We've been on our mid-year break, sort of, haven't we? (laughs) Well, I don't know what your mid-year break is, but any break I take is just more TV. So mid-year, end of year, whenever. I know, yeah, break or work, it's pretty much the same, isn't it? Um, You're in your little home uh, office, I'm in mine, and um, things don't change. At least uh, they're mowing the lawn next door, so uh, thankfully that's all. I'm I'm loving that today that we're going to stray off television a little bit and talk about movies because of so many Australian movies and things that are going on to VOD services uh, because of uh, corona shutting down all the cinemas. Yeah, yeah. And so my excuse for talking about movies too, not that you need an excuse, that our brief is, I guess, things you watch on television. Yeah, true. And if these movies are going to TV first, we should be talking about them, I think. Absolutely, absolutely. Let's start with, there's a few big um, reality formats all about to finish. MasterChef, The Voice and Big Brother all wrap up in the next few days. I've been a massive uh, MasterChef fan, well... For, for, for all that ever since it launched, but especially this year I've been enjoying it. I'm enjoying the new judges, Melissa, Jock and Andy. Yep. I think they're really good. They're, they're very positive. They're very encouraging. Um, what else, James, do you buy into this tabloid talk I'm seeing that the contestants don't think Andy's a great judge? Um, no, I don't. I, I get what people are saying, but um, he's just different, you know? Yeah. He's young, he's enthusiastic. He uses different language, you know. Um, He's not a seasoned um, food professional with a long, long career, but he's he's building one. And, you know, I I think he's fine. Will he survive? Who knows? But um, he's pretty good. Would Poe be better than him, which is the the chat going on? Look, I'm not sure. She was, again, a big star through this season. Yeah. It's not quite the same without her, but, look, the final five was uh, Reynolds, Laura, Amelia, Callum and Reese. Um, they were all great cooks, great TV talent. The final three we're left with is um, Reynolds, Laura and Amelia. It's going to be a pretty exciting last couple of episodes. Is this going to be in the top three series of MasterChef of all time? <sighs> that is a very good question. It, look, it would be close. Right. It'd be top five. It could be top three. I'd have to sit down and look look at the others. Yeah, there's a lot to go back on. But, I mean, from everything I hear about it, I don't watch MasterChef, but everything I hear about it, people have been really, really into it this year. Yeah, no, it's good. And it's it's really basic. I mean, because of the um, COVID-19, they've had to cut out a lot of things like a lot of the outside challenges, a lot of the guest chefs that have been coming in. Yeah. And the show hasn't really suffered. It's purer now than at any other time during its uh, 12 seasons, I think. Yeah, good. So that's good. Now, are you watching either The Voice or Big Brother? I look at Big uh, The Voice in commercial breaks, but I have spent a lot of time watching Big Brother and I'm kind of ashamed to admit that <laughs> because it's, it's really been quite awful. I've always been a fan of Big Brother, James. I've always watched it. I like the idea of the kind of the Lord of the Rings type, uh, you know, how do people behave in these social situations? 
But there seems to be one of the reasons I can't tear my eyes away from it is there's something quite wrong with the format now. Now that they're pre-taping it, so there's no view of voting, they're getting the housemates to vote for each other. And this is taking a lot of joy and fun out of the show for me because you spend half an hour of the show every night with people scheming and being really nasty about who we're going to set upon and throw them out. And I think it takes away from what Big Brother is about. I think if you look at the series on Channel 9 and Channel 10, we saw mateship and some really fun relationships develop. And unfortunately, the mateship in this version on 7 comes across as very alpha male, a little bit toxic, the big strong guys ganging up against the women. I don't like it and I think they need to look at changing the rules somehow next year so as not to let uh, what are sometimes bullies winning. I know that every now and then someone who's been evicted has been put back into the show and, and they're clearly aware of it, but I think that this, the housemates voting each other out is leading to a nastier, less fun show. So you don't think, I mean, the talk about the strategy or the format changes... Some people said it was making it more like Survivor. Correct. And, and, and that's not what I watch Big Brother for. I watch Big Brother for the relationships. And we see very little of the laughing and the fun time because everyone's whispering behind their hands about who they want to stab in the back. That's the main gist of this show and it's disappointing. Yeah, I guess. But, to, I mean, look, I'm not watching this format or the old ones, so I shouldn't really be judging it. But... For me, why it was a little bit boring in the old format because often nothing much was happening. We just right. people hanging around by the pool, you know, nearly every episode it seemed, all hanging out in the bedroom, in the kitchen, but without a lot going on. But that's because they were doing a 30-minute show every day regardless of whether or not anything happened. This mm. new format now, if there's three boring days, they can push that down into one episode. They can edit around this. I'm talking about the fact that when you've got housemates always voting out other housemates without the public, it's nasty. And I think sometimes they should flip it around and sometimes get them to vote them in uh, most popular to least popular. And every t now and then Big Brother could say, stuff you all send out, get rid of the person you think's the, the least, the best popular. You know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. Just, there's just something nasty about this format that I think Seven needs to look at for next year to bring back some of the fun to it. Would Big Brother have a bigger role in no, no, the Big Brother's or is he already doing that? No, Big Brother's got a great role. Big Brother's in there stirring them up and, you know, there's been several instances where Big Brother has stepped in to stem the nastiness. But, but I think there's got to be something done about the, the voting so that uh, people aren't getting picked on. The, um, yeah, I'm not sure if they'll be making changes because it's been pretty successful for seven. Yeah. So, you know, but they've definitely commissioned it again. And you've got to think they probably won't fiddle with it too much. No, they're, well, they're certainly not going to go to live, are they? Because it's so expensive. No. There's nothing wrong with the new format. I just think they need to look at the rules of voting. Okay. Okay. Um, a show that did reasonably well this week, and it's something that, no one would have been forecasting that Nine pulled out the um, tapes of that Beatles live performance at Festival Hall in Melbourne from 1964. 
did over half a million viewers uh, on Monday night. And at 9.30 too. Look, I thought it was sensational, James. They didn't just pull out a concert and repeat it. They remastered it. They fixed up the audio so you could hear the harmonies of the Beatles. They found people who'd been at the concert. One guy even had his ticket stub. So they found unseen footage. They put stuff in about the era to make you understand where Australia was when the Beatles arrived. It was sensational from start to finish. And I give a huge thumbs up. It's the best local show that Nine has made in a long time. The... um well, that's a backhanded compliment, isn't it? <laughs> I don't, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not being mean there. I just, in terms of their nostalgia, it wasn't yeah, just... Yeah, a, a good programming move. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not sure how many concerts the Beatles played in Melbourne. I think they did a few. But my mum and dad saw them at Festival Hall in Melbourne. So there was quite a lot of crowd shots. So I was looking through the crowd uh, very carefully. Well, I've got to admit, I was wondering because this 45-minute uh, concert, well, 40-minute concert was being broadcast by Nine, I wondered if they hadn't told everyone in Festival Hall to tone it down a bit because we hear these stories that you couldn't hear what was going on because of the screaming and yet every time I saw an audience shot, people were sort of holding it together. It almost felt to me like they had said, this show is going out on TV, everyone just bring it down a few notches. I could be wrong, but that's what it felt like to me. Yeah, I think the actual playing time was under 30 minutes. It was, it was a relatively short concert. Forty. David Campbell, who hosted and did a great job, he said the concert was only 40 minutes when he talked about how basic it was, you know, just an amp and just those boys' harmonies. Look, I thought it was great. Some of that footage of the time and of the Beatles arriving in Sydney, arriving in Melbourne, driving through the streets of Adelaide where... Some people have calculated, you know, one in two people living in Adelaide probably came out to see them. There were that many people. Isn't that incredible? The amazing shots in Melbourne of um, Burke Street outside the Southern Cross Hotel. Yeah. Just a mass of people outside the Melbourne Town Hall, down in Swanson Street, and just the the old footage. You could see some of the old stores. And as a, as a Melbourne person, and I used to run a business just near the uh, Southern Cross Hotel. It was just a, a wonderful bit of nostalgia and there should be more of that on our TV. Yes, yeah, I loved it. I thought it was really, really well done. Yeah, I, and I don't want to go off on a sidetrack here, but surely there's enough content from those early days and sadly we've probably lost a lot of it. But um, there's, there's a lot there. I've been through that Channel 9 warehouse. They've got a lot of concert footage. Back in the 60s, that's what they did. Every um, international artist that came to town uh pretty much had uh, part of their concert televised on Channel 9. You know, Marlena Dietrich, Tom Jones, Sammy Davis Jr. They've got a lot of stuff there and some of it's been released on DVD through Umbrella Entertainment. But what was great about this Beatles footage was the extra care they put into it and the way they put context into it from modern audience. That's where the potential lies for the future. Um, Watching David Campbell walk through that Channel 9 vault made me think, well, look, they're moving to an office building in um, North Sydney. What's going to happen to all that that great stuff, which I want to chase it up with nine and find out what will happen to it. Well, that vault is not at Willoughby. That's somewhere else, that vault. I've been in those uh, hallways many times. So, yeah, hopefully their papers are all safe. Okay. We've seen a bit of Sean McAuliffe on the TV lately. He was on, I think he was a guest on... Q&A on Monday night. 
Yeah. He's got his special on um, Sean McCullough's On The Source coming up. And is there another season of Mad As Hell they're promoting as well? Yes, I think I saw an ad for Mad As Hell last night after the weekly. So he's getting ready to do another series of that. I would imagine they'll let the uh, Sean McAuliffe's on the source air and then start Mad As Hell after that. I, I could be wrong, but that's what it feels like to me. Sure, yeah. So it looks pretty interesting uh, on the source. Have you, you haven't seen a preview yet, have you? Have I've watched the first two episodes. Oh, a few of them, is there? Yeah, yeah, there's three, and there's two uh, that you can preview now. And I loved it because I'm a bit of a teetotaler like Sean McAuliffe, and I've copped that from people where people are very suspicious of me. What do you mean you don't drink, you know? I've had that my entire life, and so I found it really, really interesting getting into this. And, and just this weird thing we have here in Australia where we don't just celebrate, uh, we, we celebrate uh, getting off your face on this substance. You know, any other drug, you would be looked at badly by society. But if you get falling down drunk at a party, people go, yeah, good on you, mate. It is a very interesting relationship Australia has with booze. And that's what Michaela tries to get into. And he's very, very revealing in this. He talks about his family, which I've never heard him talk about before. He's got stories about uh, members of his family that have died of alcoholism uh, that uh, proved to be at one stage he, he has to stop filming because it all gets too much for him. It's a very, very interesting doco with some kind of weird, quirky McAuliffe moments every now and then. So I give it a, a massive thumbs up. It's interesting they're running it in July, which is dry July for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, something else you previewed, you've, you've had a look at the... Uh, start of the new season of Wentworth, season eight. Yeah, wow. So you'll remember that uh, Wentworth was going to end on season seven. They wrote it as an ending. It was going to be the finale. Then they decided to bring it back. Well, I can tell you they've pretty much rebooted the entire drama. And I don't think I've seen a more outstanding hour of Australian drama on TV all year. And that's saying a lot, given I've watched all of uh, Stateless and Mystery Road. This new premiere with Wentworth where we get Kate Box uh, playing Lou Kelly, a former top dog who comes into Wentworth with her trans partner is unbelievably electric and uh, Wentworth is back in a huge way and, you know, to Foxtel and Fremantle that were dithering on whether or not they should bring the show back, they have absolutely made the right decision and they've been very clever to use it as an opportunity to, you know, mix things up a bit. They've done a great job. No, I haven't been following the sort of saga of when this series will end. That, is, it, is there one more season after this? Two more seasons, and I think this season is it was in the can before COVID, and I think they're now trying to finish uh, the, the final season under COVID restrictions. Okay, and we've said it before, but there's way too little drama on Foxtel at the moment, Aussie drama. Yeah, so great to have this back. And where's these shows they're supposed to be commissioning? I mean, Brian Walsh has been telling me for a while, look, they're going through the process, and I guess it's all to do with money. Money's just you know, this year wouldn't have helped uh, sport, losing sport. They've got all those sports rights they've paid for and, you know, they haven't been able to make dramas. So maybe they thought, well, look, we can't commission until sort of business uh, gets back to normal perhaps. 
Maybe, but I'm with you. We've been hearing that they're sitting on a few concepts and want to make some announcements. So hopefully we'll see something. Because um, for the most part, the Foxtel dramas have been outstanding. And I see in the news today that they're um, questioning why they have to make 10% via local quota of Aussie dramas and they don't want to do that. They want to mix it across genre. And I would be against that because, you know, Foxtel dramas have been so great. Let's not lower the, the quota. Let's keep telling them, no, please, you can do this. Keep doing it. Yeah, their, their, their success rate for the last couple of years has been pretty good. You know, has been. the stuff they've been commissioning has been very good. Uh, a memorable um, episode of Four Corners this week. Yeah, I Dan thought- Grant. Now, I was shocked when he said during the episode he was the first uh, Indigenous Australian not just to host it but to even report on the program. And I think it's over 40 years. I know, it's amazing, isn't it? And we're seeing this happen over and over again today. You know, this morning I was reading about Viola Davis on the cover of Vanity Fair and, and she's the first black woman as, as photographed by a black photographer in the history of Vanity Fair. We saw, saw Stan Grant on Insiders become the first person of colour to be on the panel of Insiders since it began. So it's amazing when you actually nut it down and ask these questions. So then there's some shows that have never uh, been in this before. Yes, get them on board. Let's hear some different viewpoints for a, for a time. and and. Stan Grant looking at the Black Lives Matter uh, movement and putting it through the eyes of growing up uh, as an Indigenous man in Australia. I found it very moving and very important to listen to and uh, I thought it was a great episode of Four Corners. Yeah, no, it was pretty compelling. I loved it when he was sitting with his mum and dad too near the the end of the episode. That was just so, so wonderful to see the family together. Oh, and the stories they told about their experiences with racism. Yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, no, it was good. Now, Tenova made a reasonably big announcement this week. Their much-anticipated third multi-channel has been revealed, and they're going to be calling it Shake. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's going to be edgy. <laughs> it's going to be edgy. It's going to be kids during the day, but at night it's going to be, in inverted commas, edgy. Yeah. The, um, it's, a, it's a strange mix, isn't it? So the, the kids' stuff during the day are, yeah. are, quite, are quite familiar kids' brands for people who've had subscription TV, particularly Nickelodeon, and programs like Paw Patrol, Blaze and the Monster Machines. Yeah. Um, iCarly has been around for quite a while. Uh, SpongeBob SquarePants. A couple of Ten's children's shows from their primary channel will move across, including, I think, um, is it Rain? Oh, totally Wild with Ranger Stacey. Yeah. Um, in evenings, well, it's, they're really lacking any sort of big, powerful programs. And Ten sort of acknowledged that when they said, look, we've got some NCIS as one of the, the pillar programs on, um, on Ten. What's on? On Ten Bold. Yep. And on, um, what's the other one, 10? Well, 10 Peach. 10 Peach has got Friends, I think. Yep. They also screen Neighbours. Yep. When you get to Shake, you you know, you, you're big up. You know, The Daily Show with Trevor Noah is a great show, but gee, not many people have heard of it here. That's It's not going to attract a big crowd. Same with The Late Late Show with James Corden. Yeah. You know, big, again, that's not going to get a big crowd. 
it worries me that all that the networks are rushing to create all of these new channels. I'm still not convinced they actually have the content to fill all these channels. I mean, you look at, uh, I love 10, but you know, the, the peach and bold schedules. How many times have I complained to you, James, that peach is still screening the King of Queens and Becca and all these tired sitcoms <laughs> that nobody would give a shit about whether they were on air or not. And they just lazily put this kind of block programming up there. It doesn't appeal to a 10 peach audience. If you tell me what a 10 peach audience is, they don't want to watch Kevin James in the King of Queens. It makes no sense. It just feels to me that they're buying bunches of shows and just throwing them in willy-nilly under the guise of, oh, this channel will appeal to this market. But it really only appeals to those markets during a couple of hours of prime time per day. During the rest of the day and the night, it's just filler. And I think that they should try a little bit harder with uh, the shows they're finding for these channels. I guess their hands are tied a little bit because they need to access the CBS programming or the, the Viacom CBS programming, um, you know, as, as, as they're owned by the, the uh, global media conglomerate. They're sort of compelled, I guess, to take it. They, they have gone outside of that a little bit, like some of the movies they will be showing on the Ten Shake. Uh, they're going to have the, Man, uh, the Matrix franchise, the Hunger Games movies, the Oceans movies, um, but all things that have been screened, you know, multiple times yeah. on other channels. Yeah. Um, all those shows are being screened on Nine now, so obviously Nine are about to lose their contract with those movies. The Hunger Games was on last weekend on Go. Right. So, you know, you're right. They're just, they're just moving the same old shit from network to network. Yeah. Um, shows like Catfish, the TV show, X on the Beach, you know. Mm, it might attract a few younger viewers, but it's not going to get big numbers, is it? It's not going to bring kids back to free-to-air TV, James. No, no. Although when you look at the offer now, there's 22 free-to-air channels plus the catch-up services of all them, of all, of all those uh, five channels or of all the five main primary channels. There, we've talked about it before. There is a lot on offer if you just don't want to pay a streaming service. That, that is true. That is, in fact, well, you've not, we've noticed through COVID that all of the catch-up sites uh, have been adding new titles. Seven Plus has been doing very well. That They've talked about how Big Brother has brought new viewers to them. We saw the figures for uh, the VOD figures for Married at First Sight on Nine Now. What a hit that's been for them and how huge it is. So, But, I mean, I've seen some really interesting titles popping up on those catch-up services during COVID. So keep going through the vaults and find something that hasn't been played to death for sure. Let's talk about some of those feature-length movies we mentioned at the start of the podcast. One's coming to Amazon on this weekend and I think they were anticipating a cinema release, but that's yeah. not going to happen. The excellent Mr Dundee. The very excellent Mr Dundee. <laughs> yeah, that little word's in there. I had to correct my copy this morning when I noticed that. Look, I watched uh, Paul Hogan's film last night. I reckon it's his best film since the original Crocodile Dundee. Wow. It is absolutely hilarious. What's really interesting, James, is that 
in every single interview I've seen Paul Hogan do about this movie, everyone's trying to draw him into the whole cancel culture. Oh, Hogs, what about your old stuff? Have you ever been, you know, you're going to be cancelled. And what's clever about this is that Hogs is always is one step ahead of the game. That's what this film is about in a way. He plays himself in this mockumentary movie, living in Hollywood, studios coming at him to make another sequel to Crocodile Dundee. And he portrays himself as a dinosaur that puts his foot in his mouth every time he walks out the door. And it's absolutely hilarious. And what I particularly like about the film, James, is that um, with his casting, he's got new actors we haven't seen before, new funny guys in some of the roles. We've, we see all the kind of uh, Hollywood heavyweights in there like John Cleese and Chevy Chase and Olivia Newton-John. But there's also a bunch of Aussie comedians in there as well. I saw um, Shane Jacobson, Randall Jacobson, Bev Killick, Paul Fenix in it. It's just fantastic the fact that he's opened it up and, and included comedians of today to come join him. Massive thumbs up for the very excellent Mr Dundee. I reckon it'll be a big hit for Amazon Prime. Glad Shane Jacobson's getting some work. I'm a bit worried about him. <laughs> he doesn't seem to be in enough, does he? <laughs> um, it's interesting you talk about Paul Hogan because I've seen a couple of interviews and he does seem to indicate he's, he's ready to retire. This, this could be it. I mean, the guy's 80. Yeah. And, and he seems very wary of the media, though, doesn't he? He sort of is very careful with his answers and, he's in, and he looks like he's expecting someone to try and trip him up. I agree, James, and, and I think they are trying to trip him up. They're trying to make him the poster boy for cancel culture, you know, and he, you know, when we think about it, Paul Hogan has never been political. And I thought it was very interesting. I saw on 7.30 when Michael Rollins asked him what did he think about President Trump. And, and Hoag's answered in a very Hoag's way. He said, oh, I think he's the most entertaining politician since Idi Amin. And he made a few jokes about it. But then when he stopped talking, the look on his face told us everything we needed to know about what he thought about Trump. But he didn't actually say it because... The truth is that I don't think Paul Hogan wants to put himself on one side, the right wing or the left wing. He wants to sit in the middle and sort of say, yeah, some of my old stuff was sexist, um, but, you know, it was never nasty. And he's absolutely true when he says that. And Paul Hogan got cancelled back in 1984 when the last episode of The Paul Hogan Show went to air. So why we think it's relevant to even drag him into this when he hasn't been cancelled is that's why he's suspicious of the media. And look, the very excellent Mr Dundee, I think, would be an amazing swan song for him to retire on. Now, I feel obliged to ask this. Walter Mercado. Yeah. No, no family connection. No family connection. You must be talking about mucho, mucho amor, the legend of Walter Mercado. He was a Spanish psychic, James, who was a massive TV star in South America. And then, of course, he went to Spain. And then they started moving him into America in the 90s. And he was basically, he basically dressed like Liberace. And he did astrological horoscopes on TV. And the countries used to stop when he was on air because he was very positive, very fun, mucho, mucho amor, much, much love every day. But there's a real story to tell in this documentary 
documentary because he disappeared from view and nobody could figure out what happened to him. And this Netflix documentary explains it all. So, yes, I don't think I'm related to Walter Mercado, but I would be happy if people thought I was. You know, I had a look at this last night. First, first five minutes I'm thinking, yeah, it's not bad. And suddenly, but they don't make a big deal of it. They, everyone's talking about what happened to him. And suddenly he's there, he's part of the show. There's, there's no big reveal, which I quite like. It was, they just started talking to him and they get in, they start going through the stages of his career and yeah. explaining what happened and where. Um, I thought it might be like the Tiger King a little bit and I just wouldn't care, but some of the, the clips, especially of him going into the US, yeah, it's really interesting and you sort of get drawn into it a bit. You really do. And, of course, uh, what happened to him? I was, I was kind of trying to second-guess why he disappeared from view and I was going, oh, I think I know what's coming. But it, it was a surprise and that's why I don't want to give it away now. It was, it was awful what happened to him. And, um, but, I mean, we've seen this story so often before where uh, people sometimes, big famous people who are concentrating on the main gig aren't aware that something horrible is happening to them behind the scenes because they're not really paying attention. Uh, so, yeah, I, I still really liked it. Yeah. One other movie I thought we should mention today is um, Eurovision Song Contest, Story of Fire Saga. Was it Saga? Saga or Story of Fire Saga, I think. Story of Fire Saga, yes. It was absolutely hilarious. This is Will Ferrell, Rachel McAdams, Dan Stevens and a whole bunch of real Eurovision singers <laughs> doing cameos in it. Yeah. A fantastic look. I wasn't expecting much for this. A lot of uh, Will Ferrell stuff can be hit and miss. Yeah. Um, this one is brilliant, though. It's just so many good scenes. He apparently does his own singing, wow. which is amazing. Uh, Rachel McAdams has dubbed, and I think they've, they've used a, a Scandinavian singer who's, who's got a brilliant voice for what she does. But the music's brilliant. Some of the scenes are around the actual Eurovision contest particularly the sort of party after, I think it's before the actual first night or after the, the song along. Yeah, when they do those sing-alongs. It's just yeah. fantastic. Yeah. So I'm with you. A lot, a lot of people tell me, I don't want to watch that film. I don't like Will Ferrell. And I say to them, no, 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 watch this film. This will be the film that you might end up liking Will Ferrell. But I had some friends of mine say, oh, I can't believe you made us watch that film. It was terrible. We kept looking at each other going, I can't believe Mercado told us to watch this. And I went, yeah, but what about this bit? And they went, oh, yeah, that was hilarious. And I said, but what about this? And they went, oh, that was really funny. And I went, but you didn't think it was any good. I mean, yeah. they were playing the track when I went to their house. They were playing Ding Dong on YouTube. Hello, they loved it. Yeah, no, it's, it's excellent stuff. Much recommended. Now, there's going to be, is there going to be a 30 Rock reunion? Yeah, there is. This is happening in America on, I think uh, NBC have started their new streaming service over there, The Peacock. Um, and I don't know whether this is going to air on NBC or it's it's an exclusive on their new streaming service. But all the actors are reuniting. So that's uh, Tina Fey, uh, Jane Krakowski, Alec Baldwin and Tracy Jordan. And it's a one-off episode of 30 Rock in the Age of COVID. And 30 Rock in its day was one of my favourite shows. I don't know who would air it here in Australia. Channel 7 had original rights. They used to play it at 11.30 on a Monday night, if you remember. Now it's on Foxtel. I think it's on one of the ABC comedy channels. Um, but, yeah, I can't wait to see it. I might have to get my VPN out and try and figure out another way to watch this. I can't wait. Yeah, I because I was on the... Um 
mailing list, you know, before Peacock launched, you could put your name down. And I got an email this week saying, look, it's going, you can register here. So I just wondered if I turn on the VPN, if I, because you can, there's a free level where you, oh, and that's the sort of level that doesn't cost. So cool. you can, um, you can, you might be able to get in there. Because the, the tripping thing on a lot of those is you, you need to register with a US credit card, which yeah. can be difficult even if you've got the VPN on. So yeah, yeah, might be time to check that out. I've watched the first episode of Perry Mason. I've got to say, I loved it. Yeah, right. Well, I've watched about three of them and I need to get back into it. I mean, from an art direction point of view, it's quite staggering, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Stunning. Um, it's really cinematic, isn't it? They've just done yeah. such a good job and they must have spent a fortune on it. It's, it's amazing to me how successful it's been because I wouldn't have said to you that Perry Mason, which was the first drama ever made for American TV in 1957, the first hour-long legal drama, uh, that people would have remembered it. And yet it's given HBO in America some fantastic figures. I, I haven't seen the figures of what it's doing here for Foxtel, but uh, um, HBO, I think, would be very, very happy with the initial uh, audience response to it. So uh, my understanding is that but when it ends, it's kind of setting up a new Perry Mason as we remember him, the lawyer in courtroom cases, that that's what this prequel series leads oh, to. So this is a prequel almost, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Well, fantastic. I mean, yeah, look, Matthew Reese is great in the title role. Um, John Lithgow, I was surprised to see him. He's got a big role I mean, he, he brings a sort of some gravitas to anything he's in. Yeah. And, um, and Robert Patrick turned up as a guest star in that first episode. So yeah. I'm very happy with that. And I was wondering where they filmed it. There's a, there's a lot of use of a cable car in that first. And I was thinking, there's only a cable car in San Francisco, isn't there? But it doesn't look like the San Francisco cable car. No, no, no. It's L.A. It's noir L.A. in 1930s. And would you believe, James, when I was re-watching America in Colour the other night where they uh, turned the black and white footage into colour and they were talking about Hollywood in the 1930s and there was that cable car. Back in 1930s they had all these street cars, which obviously they've ripped up since, but that cable car on the angle that features so heavily in the first episode of Perry Mason, that was a real place, a real thing. Yeah, well, I, I did a bit of a Google too, and it's still there, that cable yeah. car. It's wow. in down, downtown, so who knew, eh? So it's, uh, yeah. if we ever get out of this country again and I get back to the, U, <laughs> the US, I want to check out that cable car. Something else I've really enjoyed was the uh, sort of miniseries, I guess, quiz about the controversy yeah. surrounding the um, alleged cheat on uh, who wants the British edition of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Yeah, yeah, wasn't that interesting? Just three parts to tell the story of, and, you know, the miniseries still kind of, they don't really know, do they, whether or not I don't reckon he did. I reckon he, he still claims he's innocent. He's still yeah. trying to get up a, um, what do you call it, a, um, an, an appeal to, to, right. that, to that sentence. But a lot of people reckon he did it. But I don't, the show leaves you sort of wondering. They don't really say, look, this is what... They did lots of things to prepare. Yeah. They don't really show you that cheating. But they certainly show you that there was a bunch of people who were all trying to figure out a way to bust the system and they were a part of that. Yeah. So they can sit there and go, oh, look, in the end we didn't do it. But an awful lot of stuff in that miniseries suggests that they were looking for ways to, to try to get there. So, That's yeah. fascinating, though, that guy... I can't remember the character, but the guy who's uh, 
sort of the lord of all the the people trying to to crack it. He was the sort of the guru of trying to crack millionaire. And he, I think he actually did get a lot of people a lot of money, but I think via legitimate means. Like, without- I wonder if there's an Aussie guru like that that goes around telling people how they can win the Chase Australia and Eddie's hot seat. Yeah. Look, again, the cast I really loved of that um, uh, was the guy from uh, the guy who plays Tom. In- Matthew McFadden. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. great, you know, and hasn't Succession really given him a, a higher profile. Now you look at him and go, well, where do I know him from? And yeah. it's Tom. Of course, he, in the, he's lucky in um, Succession. He's married to Aussie Sarah Snook, of course. So yeah. That's why we, we also remember him. And um, is it Sean Clifford? Um, Sian, Sean, I not how to pronounce it, uh, who plays his wife, Diana. Oh, she's the one from Fleabag. Correct, yeah. She's the sister, Claire, in Fleabag. Yeah. Yeah. Um, something I've been watching, and I always bang on about these, but the Railway Journey shows on SBS. It's amazing how many train shows those guys come up with, you know. Yes. The, the latest one is Great Asian Railway Journeys with the very prolific Michael Patillo. Yep. He's, he's back and I, it's, it's great, this episode. First uh, one was set in Hong Kong. I think he's down in Indonesia in another one. Just getting around. There's, you wouldn't have thought there's many parts of the world left where he hasn't travelled on all the railways. So I'm, I've been watching that. Extreme Railway has just finished. They had another one on the, um, the, the beauty behind the Scottish rail system. Wow. That, had, that had some stunning photography in it as well. And just this week, um, uh, Sir Tony Robinson finished his Around the World by Train. So they've got plenty of train series and I'm guessing they're going to have a few more up their sleeve because they still rate fantastically well. But wouldn't it be good to see someone other than an ageing British white guy making these train travels? Yeah, I mean, we've seen Michael Portillo came out and made the Australian Railways show here. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. We, we, we need to mix up uh, the travel hosts a bit now as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a new show starting on the ABC this week. It's going to be called The Sound. And I guess they're sort of hoping it might generate some of the, the interest that Countdown had back in the day, get some Aussie music up in a sort of a almost prime time slot. It's going to go for an hour from 5.30 till 6.30. Um, Starts this week. The show only got the okay like a week ago and they've been scrambling to get the first episode up for this Sunday. They're going to deliver it to the ABC on Friday and then get working because they've commissioned six episodes so far. I've noticed that uh, Jane Gazzo's going to host it and I noticed in the press release that every week they'll focus on a sort of a classic artist. Uh, So there'll be a lot of new music but there'll also be a bit of a nod to the past. Yeah, thumbs up. Um, Australian music, you know, never recovered from the loss of Countdown and if they could make this work and... I'd be um, agitating for them to get it into that slot immediately before the 7pm news. Because one of the great things about Countdown that we've lost today is when they counted down to the top one song in the country via the top 10. As a kid, you'd be watching that and your parents would be there waiting for the news to start. And whether they liked it or not, they were getting information on music that their kids were into via osmosis. Always remember, you know, every now and then, you know, my father or mother had 
peek over the newspaper and go, oh, is that really necessary, you know? (laughs) But you know what? Secretly they were loving some of the music as well and we lost that connection. So, yeah, if it works, put it on immediately before the 7pm news on uh, Sunday nights and go the full hog. So I've got some talent behind the camera. Can Michael Gadinsky is a big driver of this because it's yep. part of that. It's a mushroom project to get it on. And he's got Sol Stein working on the program. Now, Sol is the former head of sport for Seven, a long-time employee of Wide World of Sports at Nine. Yep. That was He was originally tapped on the shoulder in that role to start MTV when it was on nine years ago. And um, he started that. Then he pulled one of his colleagues across from Wide World of Sport, a, a guy called Mark Fennessy. Yep. Mark Fennessy ran uh, MTV and Soul went back to sport. So he's enjoying being back in uh, music television. Nice. Nice work. So, yeah, look, people, let's uh, try and support this show anyway. To, to Hopefully it'll, it'll get a longer run than six weeks and it might bed in a bit of an audience. Uh, so it's 5.30 Sundays. I think they're repeating it on the following Saturday as well. 12.30, I think. Yeah. yeah, and it'll be, of course, up on iView for everybody. Yeah. I just want to mention a couple of things before we wrap it up, um, and then I'll come back to you, Andrew. If you've got a preview of your column this week, yes. what you might be writing about in Media Week would be good, but a couple of things I wanted to mention was one called, there's an app called Just Watch. Now, I've been looking for an app where you could track, keep a track of the TV programs you're watching and have a watch list of things you want to get to. Wow. The best one I've found is Just Watch. So it works on a laptop, it works on an iPad, it works on your phone. I'm writing it down now, yep. And it's pretty good. It's a bit quirky. You can put movies as well as TV shows on it. So instead of having to scribble down on bits of paper when I hear about something, I've got a place I can go to now and and have a list. Um, It's on the... Laptop, it's working fine for me. When I call it up on my a mobile device, it only shows the TV shows, not the movies. So I'm not sure if I'm doing something wrong. But and the other thing I would like, I would like to be able to tick off each episode of a seat, which you can't do unless, again, I'm missing out on something. But it's so far, I'm really enjoying the experience. And it's, I don't know if it has access to IMDb or it's connected, but the interface looks a lot similar. And you get a lot of information with the shows as well. On a lot of the artwork, it looks really schmick. The whole app just looks brilliant sitting there. So it's a great companion to have when you're sitting in front of the TV. Um, something I'm looking forward to watching is Plot Against America. Yep. It looks really good. It's just turned up on my um, Foxtel. They're calling it an alternate American history. Yeah. A great cast, Winona Ryder, John Futuro yep. are two of the leads. I'm really looking forward to that. And it's, I, I'm, in, I'm sort of enjoying these, if you like, semi-fictionalised look at history. Alternate realities. Yeah, yeah. There's one I've just watched on Binge called Noughts and Crosses, uh-huh. which is about uh, Britain under African rule. It flips it around and the blacks are running uh, government and the whites are the downtrodden. And so we have a bit of a Romeo and Juliet scenario where um, the African daughter of a politician uh, is uh, falling in love with the white son of their housekeeper. So, yeah, you're right. This is going into that. What's that show on Amazon that does this, The Man in the High Castle? The Man in the High Castle. I was just going to mention that, where the Japan 
and uh, Germany win the Second World War. Yeah. Japan takes control of the West Coast of the USA. Um, Germany runs the East Coast. Yeah. It was fascinating. And there's a book I want to read called um, A Rodham, A Novel. It's a, a fictionalised um, look at the life of Hillary Clinton if she hadn't married Bill Clinton. Oh, yes, I heard about this, yeah. yeah. It's fascinating. I've heard some great reviews. I've heard people who've actually read it and had a great time, so I'm, I'm looking forward to getting into that one too. Yeah, cool. Now, one, what, what, one of the little tips I just yeah. found, I'm so excited. There's something I've been wanting them to make for years and years, and I found out they made it three years ago and I didn't know. They have made an Amazon original, the history of the Playboy magazine Empire. Wow. So the original uh, interviews with Hugh Hefner and his staff, but then they recreate and dramatise a lot of it and go back right to when the first magazine started. And episode three, James, I was thinking of you the whole way through it. In episode three, 1959 is when he starts Playboy's Penthouse, which is a late night variety TV show wow. and he looked at everything that's already on TV and goes, we don't want to do like the Ed Sullivan show. It's got to be cool. And so they make it like Hef's uh, uh, penthouse, but then all the TV stations in the deep South refuse to air it because Hef is, Hef is a great civil rights advocate and refuses to not allow African-Americans into the building. He brings Ella Fitzgerald into the first episode of the show and the Deep South says, well, we're not airing it. And so they say to Hugh Hefner, what do you want to do? If we lose the South, the show may not be a success. And he says, well, they can miss out. And so he does it and the show's a huge success anyway. I mean... Hugh Hefner was a real trailblazer in so many ways in terms of the sexual revolution and particularly with the civil rights and, and very relevant for the Black Lives Matter debate today. So the Playboy docuseries on Amazon original, it's, it's, it's long and I'm only up to episode four, but I am loving it. Yeah, I think I've seen that on the menu. It was one of their early originals too, wasn't it? It's been there for a while. I just thought it was a one-off documentary like right. on the SBS screens and I was like, I've seen that. I've seen that on SBS. But mm. I, whatever, I decided to look go into detail. When I saw all these episodes, I went, I've never seen this before. Yeah. Give us a sneak peek at what you'll be writing about in Media Week this week if we remember to publish it. <laughs> I'm going to write about how uh, there seems to be a lot of stuff on TV now where uh, journalists and comedians are getting very, very personal. So people like Sean McAuliffe and Stan Grant, um, Adam Hills did the special about the rugby league team with disabilities. Amy Schumer's new show, Expecting Amy, which Binge has got now, it's an HBO Max show. It's all about her getting married and then having the worst morning sickness for months and months and months to the point where she ends up in hospital trying to film a new special for Netflix. Very, very personal stuff where we're seeing a different side of these, uh, these people now. So, yeah, I'll be talking about how TV's getting very personal. Yeah, wonderful stuff. All right, look, um, great catching up with you. It's good to be back in the, um, back in the podcast chair. I uh, look forward to doing it again soon. Thanks, Andrew. You bet, James. Have a great week.